Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church podcast. For more information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Well, I don't always come up here with a box of Kleenex, but I am a little bit under the weather, and so uh, you're going to have to kind of push through my my voice uh, as we do this and pray for me that we get through this. My uh, my, my black pastor friends would be saying, help me right now, pray for me. And you guys can shout things back to encourage me to get me through this day. Um, I, I wish sometimes we were a little more like that. So y'all can talk back if you need to today and kind of keep this thing going. Uh, but we are starting a new series on the life of David. And I think this is a, an important series for us and for our time, but every life tells a story and David's story is particularly extraordinary. It's extraordinary for several different reasons. One is, And he's just kind of a Renaissance man. He's a warrior, he's a poet, he's a singer-songwriter, he's a king, he's a shepherd, he's a leader. Uh, He just kind of covers the spectrum of stuff that you see in David's life. Uh, But you also see that it's extraordinary because he's an extremely broken man. As we watch David's life, we see him go through betrayals, through moral failure, through parenting fiascos and marital discord. Uh, We see him go through uh, all kinds of, uh, of issues. In fact, two of his sons end up getting executed and one of them is a rapist. And so you see this tension between this man. And yet through all of that, David is the only person ever that's been called a man after God's own heart. And we see David pouring out his heart with this passionate love that shows up in the Psalms that he wrote so many of. In fact, the longest worship book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, David penned many of those Psalms. Uh, one of the pieces of literature that most people say is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature ever written, Psalm 23, came from the pen of David. And so we see kind of how this works. It's, it's been said that David has inspired more, uh, more artwork in the history of the world than anyone except for Jesus. And so, I mean, the most famous that we tend to think of is Michelangelo's David, Right? But David has inspired more artwork than anyone else in history. In fact, when you look at your Bible, uh, there's dozens of chapters that deal with the person of David. If memory serves, David is mentioned more than anyone else from the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so um, you see how important this is. In fact, David was so influential that after the life of David, whenever someone would live really well, they would say he walked in the ways of David because David was that significant of a character. Uh, Let me just, when you think about um, the life of David, I think for me personally, one of the things that that, that my own spiritual life, my own development, my own just kind of walk with the Lord, David has been as influential as anyone. He is my favorite Old Testament character and someone whose life has continued to shape me. And from the time I was in my teenage years until now, he's never gotten old and I've never stopped being able to learn things from the life of David. And so he's someone that's influenced me personally, but I think he also will influence you. So let me tell you how important David is. If you look at the very first line of the New Testament in the book of Matthew. So Matthew, you have four gospels that start the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Matthew's the first. Let me just read to you the first line of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. First line of the New Testament. Go to the last chapter of your New Testament, Revelation 22. So the beginning of the New Testament, the very last chapter, uh, Revelation 22 says, 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So David shows up first verse and last chapter of the Bible, of the New Testament as well. And so this is probably someone that we want to get to know. And so as you think about this series, um, what we're gonna see as this series kind of unfolds is God's faithfulness to David in all the ups and downs of his life and all the high points and hard times and all uh, the peaks and valleys and all the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God is faithful to David and continues to, uh, to, to redeem David and to rescue David and to work in David's life and to steer David in, in the right direction. And ultimately what we see is that David's life isn't just about David, but David points to Jesus Christ, that Jesus is a type of David. And so everything we see in the way God works here is gonna show up and ultimately point us to the person of Jesus and teach us more about him and about his grace. And so... That's where we're headed and where we're going to go. And what I, want to, what I want you to see today is that if you want to experience a deep, meaningful life with the Lord, it's going to be a good thing to, to figure out what it looks like to be a man, after, man or woman after God's own heart. And so that's what we're going to look at today. If you would, in your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And we are going to spend most of our time there today. Normally when I preach through, I'll read through the whole passage at the beginning. I'm not going to actually do that today. We're gonna unpack it verse by verse. And, and we will get through the first 13 verses there of, of 1 Samuel 16. But I'm gonna skip around a little bit. You guys can just keep your finger there in that spot and we'll come back and um, we'll work our way through it as we go. So let me just kind of set the, set the stage here. You see first, uh, 1 Samuel 16 says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So there's a lot of background you need there. If you just hear this and you break in on the story and he says, well, I've rejected Saul. The first question is, well, who's Saul? And the second question is, why have you rejected him? So you begin to ask some questions. Well, let me unpack and just kind of set the stage for us. In, in Israel, for about 500 years, you've kind of had this general godlessness that's kind of permeated the country. And sure, they've had ebbs and flows, ups and downs. There's been times where they've kind of repented and come back and you have this cycle of repentance and restoration, but then they fall away and rebel again. And, and there's just this ongoing cycle of kind of a godless state. And God ruled his people during that time through what were called judges. And they were judges who called people to uh, do that which they, they were, were not doing. In fact, it was said in those days, Judges 21, 25 says, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so you have this situation that's unfolded over centuries. Think about how long we've been around as a, as a nation. And then think about 500 years of kind of this departing from the Lord and running away from the Lord. And these judges trying to corral people to get them back in line. And as that's happening, uh, you, you have this truth that said that there was no king and the people did whatever they wanted. They did what was right in their own eyes. Have you ever heard of a generation like that? No one, amen? All right. Um, yeah, I know, I know. Uh, so what happens? Israel comes and they demand a king. They look around at all the other nations and they say, hey, we want a king like all the other nations. And so uh, in 1 Samuel 8, here's the way it reads and as it tells us that story. 1 Samuel 8 says, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel. Samuel was the last of the judges. He was a prophet who was uh, kind of come, come around in that time. And he was, was operating in that same kind of ruler role before they had any kings. And, uh, and so Samuel was there and the people came to Samuel as he was getting old in age. And, and Samuel's uh, 
kids, we find out from other places that they were accepting bribes and perverting justice and they were kind of doing all kinds of bad stuff. And so the people looked at this and went, Samuel's old, your kids are, your kids are corrupt, this is not going well. And so they, they confront him and they said, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds they have done from that day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So you have this set up in this story of Samuel gets his feelings hurt because he's getting shoved aside because they want a king, right? But what is it that God comforts Samuel with? He says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. See, Israel to that point had been a theocracy. God himself had been their king. God himself had ruled the nation. God himself had been their direct ruler and had guided them step by step. And so when God says, when they rejected you, they're not really rejecting you, they're rejecting me and the system I set up. Uh, this is kind of a job hazard of being a spokesperson for God is that when people reject the Lord, it tends to feel personal. And so you see this set up where they have rejected, not Samuel, but God says they rejected you or they rejected me and rejected the Lord himself. And so in this scenario, what begins to unpack is God just says, look, from the day I rescued them out of slavery in Egypt, they've continued to run away from me. And now they're just doing the same thing and they've run away from you, and they're grabbing hold of something that the world has offered, which is a king. And they said, give us a king like all the other nations, and we think we'll be better off. And so in that scenario, Samuel then has to reject. And uh, in fact, this was not a surprise to the Lord, though. In fact, if you go back in the Old Testament, we can look at this later, but if you go back to the Old Testament law, there, there was laws that were given that said, this is what's gonna happen when you have a king. And he says, when you have a king, what's gonna happen is he's gonna take your sons and send them off to war. He's gonna come and tax you and take all your money. He's gonna come and force you to do things you don't wanna do in order to serve him and his purposes and his needs. And you know what happened whenever they got their first king? It's exactly what happened. Saul did the exact same thing that God had predicted and said that was gonna come. And this is what happens when we get human rulers. And so in 1 Samuel 15, skip a couple chapters over, we see kind of how this unfolds. In 15 verse 26, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, so Samuel comes to King Saul, the first king of Israel. He says, I will not return with you for you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now, therefore, uh, I'm sorry, I'm gonna stop there. And I'm sorry, verse 27, Samuel turned to go away and Saul seized the skirt of Samuel's robe and it tore. And Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So you catch this kind of confrontation. Samuel goes to Saul and tells him that God has has removed his kingdom from him because Samuel rejected the Lord. When when Samuel rejected God, God said he rejected him as the ruler of his people. And so Samuel grabs, or Saul grabs hold of Samuel's robe and it tears. And uh, Samuel, like a good teacher, good preacher says, ah, I got a built-in illustration right here. He says, just like you tore my robe, your kingdom's being torn away from you and it's gonna be handed to another who's better than you. And so it's gonna to come to another, uh, another king that will be put in place. You know what the problem with kings and leaders is? They're people. 
They're flawed. They're human. Uh, They look a lot like you and me. And so they fail a lot like you and me. And Saul was a mess from the very beginning. Uh, Saul constantly was getting himself in trouble. In fact, um, even when they, when they go to anoint him from the very, uh, at the very beginning to, to make him king, they can't find him because he's afraid and he's out hiding in the luggage. And so this guy who had this imposing figure uh, was also a man that had internal fears and anxieties. Later, before he was heading into battle, uh, he becomes impatient. He'd set up the steel and asked for Samuel to come and make sacrifices because he thought that kind of like rubbing a rabbit's foot, if he did the right things, God would give him victory in war. And so he calls for Samuel to come and Samuel says, I'll be there in a week. And so Saul waits. And while he waits, uh, the, the Philistines, his enemy, begins to crowd around and the people start to get a little nervous. And so it says that some of his people start to scatter. And so Saul, this king, begins to look and say, man, the enemy's crowding in. My people are beginning to leave. Samuel didn't show up on time when he's supposed to do, when he's supposed to show up. So Samuel, so Saul says, I'm gonna make a sacrifice. And it's interesting that Saul does what he was not permitted to do. He went and took the role that only Samuel could do and made a sacrifice. He took a religious right that was not his right to do upon himself. And he makes it a spiritual thing. He didn't wanna wait for Samuel. Samuel got there a day later. And, uh, and, and confronts him. And what Saul says, he says, the people were all leaving. You were running late. The enemy was near. And so I forced myself to make the sacrifice. And don't you love how he can turn that into a noble act? Yeah. And, man, I, I didn't want to do it. I, I didn't, I didn't want to have to do the sacrifice. But Samuel, you didn't get here on time. And so I forced myself to take one for the team. I forced myself to do the thing that I didn't want to do, but, but needed to be done. And so he comes up with this kind of spiritual justification for it. And it's such a noble act, right? We don't ever do that kind of thing though, do we? Do we ever excuse our behavior? Do we ever find ways to justify our behavior? To maybe dress it up and make it sound like, man, I, I was doing the right thing. You just didn't see, you didn't read the scenario quite right. That's, that's what you see here in Saul. He was justifying his disobedience. This isn't the, the first time this has happened though, right? Think back to the Garden of Eden. What happened in the Garden of Eden when uh, Adam and Eve took uh, the forbidden fruit and they ate and God comes and confronts Adam? What did Adam say? The woman, she made me do it. And God, that's kind of your fault too because all I did was go to sleep and you pulled her out of my rib and made her and gave her to me. So you gave me the woman, she made me eat it. This is really on you, Lord. Right? I mean, that's the way we tend to roll and how we understand this stuff. Uh, one guy makes an observation that in the Bible, the very first priest and the very first king make the same mistakes. They do something and then they blame someone else. Uh, think about this. And after Moses came, uh, came on the scene and Aaron uh, comes alongside and Aaron's gonna be the first priest and Moses goes up on the mountaintop to get the, the, the stone tablets of the law. And while he's up there, the people began to go a little bit crazy. And so Aaron comes, or Moses comes back down and all of a sudden there's this golden calf there. And there are people are worshiping this false idol of this golden calf. And Moses goes, Aaron, what happened? And Aaron goes, I don't know. The people came, they brought me all this gold. I threw it in and out came this calf. Like that's the way that worked, right? You know, just, it just popped up and I didn't know what happened. And so the very first priest deflected what happened after he shirked his responsibility. The very first king did the same thing. Saul, I don't know what happened. I forced myself, I had to do it. How do you think the battle went after Saul took something that was not his and sacrificed. It didn't go well. So we see this kind of a problem. And we have this amazing ability to masquerade as something we're not, don't we? To come up with excuses, to put, uh, put, put a kind of a front forward. 
And so what we have is Saul's doing the same thing and Samuel's here to, to deal with this mess. Can I point one little thing out to you here? What happens is um, Samuel tells Saul that his kingdom is gonna be taken away. But what we're gonna see in the next couple of weeks is that Saul's kingdom doesn't get taken away immediately. That, that eventually Saul continues to reign and eventually he will, but it doesn't. And so there, there's kind of this principle that happens that sometimes when God pulls something away from someone, and so internally he's already made the decision, the, the consequences or the, the visible expression of that kind of action don't take place for some time that when God removes himself from a leader or from an organization or from a church or from something, sometimes the, the, the other shoe doesn't fall till a little bit later. And so Saul is going to continue, um, but eventually uh, it will be taken away from him. So then let's come back to 1 Samuel 16. Still haven't got to David yet, have we? 1 Samuel 16, the Lord confronts Samuel. Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? See, when, when Samuel had to, go and take the kingdom away from Saul and do that, he began to get grieved because he knew this is the first king of our people. This is the first king of, of the nation of Israel. And, and he's wandered away. We're already on, the bag, on a bad track. And Samuel was, was also, also fearful about what's gonna happen. He was scared. And so just as he had told the king that the kingdom would be taken from him, he realized he didn't really have a succession plan. They didn't have a plan for what came next. And so Samuel was the leader who had anointed the first king and taken it away is left going, well, what do I do now? And so he wasn't sure exactly what the next step would be. And do you ever feel like God works that way in your life? Where God closes a door, but he hasn't opened a window or another door yet. And so you just know, well, this didn't work, but I'm not sure exactly where I'm going. I'm not sure exactly what lays ahead or what lies ahead. Uh, I think that's where Samuel was at this time. And sometimes we can get stuck in our fear. I think that's why the Lord says, Samuel, how long are you gonna grieve over Saul? Because God was already moving on to something else. God already had a plan. God was not shaken by this. But Samuel was a little bit fearful. Sometimes God only shows us one step at a time and he doesn't reveal everything that our future holds. The guy tell the story of Corey Ten Boom who uh, her family during World War II had sheltered Jews from the Nazis and had given them uh, a hiding place and had given them a place to hide in order to keep them out of prison. Eventually they get caught and she gets sent off to a concentration camp. And she told the story of, uh, of something her father had told her when she was little that had helped get her through all those hard times. And the story she told was her, her dad, when, when they were little said, Corey, whenever we're, we get on the train and we're, we're there going on the train, when do I give you your ticket? He says, well, you, you hold it till the very last second when the conductors come to collect it and then you give it to me. And he says, that's right. I hold your ticket. I keep it safe for you until you need it. And at the moment you need it, I always have it ready for you, don't I? And she says, yes, daddy, you do. He says, sometimes God works the same way. Sometimes God holds things from us and, he, and he's gonna give it to us when he needs it, but he keeps it and he protects it for us until the moment when we really need it. And so friends, part of the spiritual life is us learning to trust God personally. You realize that the spiritual life is not you just adhering to a set of rules or you adhering to a new philosophy of life or you adhering to some theological principles that you need to proclaim or, um, or just some religious activities. But Christians are those who come to know God personally, who learn to follow him and walk with him, who develop a heart after him. There, there's a personal relational connection to the God of the universe. And so that's what we begin to see here. And so Samuel is, is having to trust the Lord. 
And so the next, next uh, sentence, he's, God says, no longer grieve. Um, I've already rejected Saul as king. Now fill your horn with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Um, don't you love how God works? I've provided myself a king. And says, I, I, don't, I don't really need your help, but you get to be a part. You get to, you get to go to work with daddy. You get, to, you get to play a role in this, but I've provided myself with a king. I'm very much okay with what's going on here. Sometimes we can't see all that the Lord's gonna do, but we have to learn to trust him along the way. And for Samuel, this felt scary. And so Samuel looks in verse two and he says, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he'll kill me, right? Which makes a lot of sense. Uh, any of you read any history? How do the, in, in historical world, how well does the transfer of kingdoms go from one kingdom to another? Um, someone ought to make a TV show about that. It probably makes some money, right? Uh, this is not, a, not something that was gonna be an easy thing. And Samuel goes, look, I ripped the kingdom away from Saul and Saul's probably gonna be angry. He's gonna be hacked. And what if he comes after me? And the Lord says, well, take a heifer with you and I will come and, and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. So his answer is, take a cow with you, All right? And what he's saying is, let's create a little diversion. He said, we don't have to lie. We'll actually do a sacrifice. We will actually pray. We will actually do all these things, but then it won't look quite so bad. And so he, I love how kind of accommodating God is to Samuel. Samuel, you're a little afraid. Let's create a little scenario where you don't have to fear quite so much. And so he creates this scenario and brings them in. Now, verse four is one of the most remarkable verses you'll ever read. It says, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. And that doesn't happen very often, does it? I mean, I mean, you guys aren't going, whoa, I didn't hear any amens or anything. It doesn't sound remarkable at first, does it? But it's pretty simple. Like if you've ever parented, you know that's remarkable. Like you say, hey, would you do this? And they go, sure, thank you. know, they grab the trash and take it out. You're just like, whoa, miracles, right? So that's what this is, is Samuel did what the Lord commanded. He did exactly what God asked him to do. And so it's a pretty amazing thing. You know, in my house, one of the things we, we like to say is just do the next right thing. Just do the next right thing. See, the reality is in life, we can't always know what the Lord is going to do. And we can't always control what other people are going to do, but we can do the next right thing. And so that's what Samuel, what the Lord's asking Samuel to do is, Samuel, I just want you to trust me and go do the next right thing. So Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he gathers the family of Jesse and they're gonna find the new king that God has chosen. So verse eight, he says this. Then Jesse called, uh, I'm sorry, go back to verse six. It says, when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed before him. And the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. No, I'm sorry, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And so Jesse comes and calls his sons to him and parades them in front of Samuel. And Samuel begins to look. And it's interesting, Samuel first looks in this Firstborn son, Eliab, Samuel thinks, well, that must be the one. Now, how, how would first appearance tell him that would be the one? Well, he's looking at his appearance. He's looking at his stature. He's looking at his kingliness. He's looking at his, his, his ability to play the part, to, to, to look the role. And so he's, he's almost doing a casting call. And he says, man, that firstborn son, he looks like the right one. And so he's gonna trust him. 
And man, we do that so often, don't we? That we just, we look at the outside, we look at the externals, we look at the appearance of things. I mean, we, we love accolades and resumes. We, we love degrees and, and we love charisma. Uh, and we assume if someone has deep personal charisma that they're gonna be a good leader. I heard one guy say though, uh, that, that too often we choose smart over healthy. And it's easy to get enamored with talent, to get enamored with personality but look over what's in the heart. And God says, I don't see what man sees. I, I see something different. Now it's interesting, if, you, if we're gonna go back just a little bit, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating that Samuel's temptation in looking at this firstborn son is very similar to what attracted Israel to the person of Saul in the very beginning. And so if you go back to uh, 1 Samuel 9, um, we, we see where Saul was first chosen as king and we've already seen how that turned out, right? Yes. What was it that attracted them to Saul? 1 Samuel 9, 1 and 2 says, there was, a, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeor, Zo, Zo, I can't even say that, Zoror, son of uh, Becheroth, the son of Appia, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. And there was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. And from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So he's the best looking dude and a foot taller than everyone else. And they go, that's our king. Right, because they look at the externals, they look on the outside and they think, man, that must be the dude that we need to come lead us. The problem is that tall, dark and handsome doesn't necessarily make a good man. It doesn't necessarily make a good ruler. And so we see this difficulty. So let's go back to verse six, uh, chapter 16 and see what guidance God gives. He says, do not look on his outward appearance or his height. Do not look at merely the externals for God does not see as man sees, God sees the heart. He's looking for a man who is after his own heart. And can I give you a word about how important this is for us to understand? I think in all of human history, I don't think there's ever been a time where we've been more fixated on outward appearance than right now. We, we, we take that, that kind of natural inclination that's already been there, and then, then we grab a phone and we just magnify and put it on display all the time, right? And we just go, here's a look, here's a look, here's a look, here's a look, and we just keep putting it out. And so there's never been a time, I think, where we've been more kind of enamored with the external image, um, but that's what social media does. And it's not, and we can't think that it's just those young kids out there that are doing this. This affects all of us in all kinds of ways. It makes us want to purchase things, to look certain ways, to do certain things. Uh, whether it's, I mean, for some of us, you go, oh, I would never do that. But you know what? You want to make a witty statement that everyone likes because you're like, oh, look how clever he is. Look how funny he is. Look how smart she is. So even if it's not a physical image, we have these other ways we put ourselves up in order for others to, uh, to like who we are. We post pictures of meals and experiences and parties and vacations because we wanna have an image, but it's a purely external image. And think about the terms we use. We are always building a platform or a brand. We follow influencers. Like what is really an influencer? Like it's just someone whose image makes you wanna do what they do, right? That's just an external thing. Uh, we maintain a chosen identity. We're an externally obsessed culture. And students, can I say something to you? If you're in middle school, high school, college, if you're a young person here, 
You need to know your value is not determined by who follows you on Snapchat and Insta. Or whether you make the list of the in crowd at school. That's not your worth. It's not your value. You're in the, in the long run, your life will be determined much more by who you are following than by whoever follows you. Follow the Lord like David. Become a man or woman after his own heart. The rest of the stuff will work itself out over time. It just will. So let's go back to David and his brothers. Verse eight, it's interesting. We see this first brother, Eliab, the guy says, nope, that's not him. I rejected him. And it isn't like I spiritually reject him for all time. He's just saying, that's not the dude. Like that's not the man after God's own heart that I'm gonna make a king. So he rejects him. So then you get to verse eight. Um, it says, when they came, uh, I'm sorry, verse nine. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. He said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse called Shema and made him pass. He says, neither has the Lord chosen this one. He goes down through the list and goes through all seven brothers and all of them. He says, this isn't the one. This is not the dude that I've, that I've chosen. And so as he begins to look at that, then um, Samuel comes around and looks back at Jesse because Jesse's run out of kids. And God said it was gonna be one of these kids. He's run out. And so Samuel's like, dude, like, I don't know. You know, like, I'm not sure exactly what to do. And so Jesse says, what? He says, are all your sons here? And Jesse says, nah, there remains the youngest. But behold, he's out keeping the sheep. And Jesse says, uh, Samuel says to Jesse, send him and get him for me, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he goes and gets David and brings him back. And do you feel invisible sometimes? feel like maybe God doesn't, like no one sees. It's interesting that David had been left out. Even his own family left him out. Uh, but look at what God's doing. In fact, God has come to this little tribe in Bethlehem. And Micah, Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, you are too little to be even among the clans, to be numbered among the clans of Judah. Meaning you, God's gone to this little bitty clan that was insignificant, even in that tribe. It's like, and you're, a, you're like an outcast of the outcasts. You're not even noticed in amongst that group. And he's gone to this one family within that one little clan. And he's gone to the forgotten son, the one that whose daddy didn't even bring him to the lineup. And he says, but that's the one that God saw. That's the one that God was working towards. And so God is still up to something. But you gotta know David probably felt invisible. And imagine David, when he rolls up on that scene, he's like, so what's going on? It's like, oh, he says he's coming to get a king and he was gonna have one of our sons. And um, so we gathered all our sons and brought them up here, but he says, none of them are, none, none of these guys are the one. It was like, well, you didn't think to call me, huh? I didn't, didn't think maybe I wanted in on that action. And so he brings David and David um, comes there. But it's interesting to me how God often chooses his people to work with. You look at the New Testament, 1 Corinthians says this, and uh, this might ought to be humbling for each of us, right? 1 Corinthians 1 says, for consider your calling brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose that which is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose that which is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring nothing, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human might boast in the presence of the Lord. And God often chooses the little guy and raises him up. We call it grace. It's, it's the way God tends to work and he loves to show off his glory by doing wonderful things to unlikely people. And we see that here in the life of David. 
So earlier, um, what we see here, what we see in this passage that God is fixated on the heart. It says God sees what's on the inside. He sees what's on the heart. We see this pattern earlier in Samuel. Samuel is calling the Israelites to repent. He says, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then he calls them again. He says, direct your hearts to the Lord. He's focused on what's going on in here. And he says, you don't need a king like all the other kings. You need a, you need a king who has a heart after, after God's heart. And he continues to push him in that direction. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament says what? Grace came in as you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So what do we know about David at this point? Well, we don't, we don't know a whole lot, right? Verse 12 says, so David came and says he was ruddy, or ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The Lord says, arise, anoint him for this one is he. And Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So we don't know a whole lot about David at this point. We just know he was a decent looking dude. He probably had some red cheeks, maybe from being out with the sheep and out in the sun so much. And so he had kind of a healthy complexion and he was one of the brothers. And so that's all Samuel can see. But we know something else, don't we? That God says, this is the one who has a heart like mine. This is the one who's following after me. And that's the important thing. So what does it mean to, what does it mean for us to have a heart after God's own heart? Chuck Sundahl says this. He says, seems to me, it means that you're a person whose life is in harmony with the Lord. What is important to him is important to you. What burdens him burdens you. When he says, go to the right, you go to the right. When he says, stop that in your life, you stop it. When he says, this is wrong and I want you to change, you come to terms with it because you have a heart for God. That's, that's the bottom line Christianity. That it's simply that your heart is in tune with his heart, that it beats in unison with him. That's interesting to me with this David who's now been selected. David hasn't killed a giant yet. He hasn't written a famous song. He hasn't fought a battle. He hasn't risen to a position of influence and yet God sought him out and says, this is my guy because his heart is mine. Friends, do you believe that you can be seen by God even when everyone else overlooks you? That you can please the Lord no matter what your circumstances are? That no matter what it is that you're facing, that God knows what's going on. And sometimes in obscurity, when no one else is watching, that that, that is the place where your character is truly formed, where your habits are shaped, where your thought patterns are are determined and where your inner life is cultivated is in a place oftentimes where no one else is watching, where you're out there on your own. And David had spent hours and in, in, in time out with a sheep wandering by himself through the wilderness. And yet God saw David in his obscurity. He saw him in his solitude. He saw him as a servant. He saw him as he uh, did the monotonous stuff that wasn't worth an Instagram post. And yet in that place, David's heart was being shaped. And he was being changed. Alan Redpath said, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment, but the manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. And God can save us right away, but he shapes us over the course of our whole life. And you know, so much of the spiritual life takes place in the monotonous. And sometimes we build churches that make it look as though everything happens on a stage and a platform in front of lights and cameras that's worthy of being posted. And God can do good work in rooms like this, but so much of your spiritual life, your walk with the Lord, your heart for the Lord, your connection to the Lord is gonna happen 
as you're walking throughout your day in all the monotonous stuff that doesn't seem as important. And yet God sees. And God says, that's my gal. That's my guy. That's the one whose heart is connected to mine in the midst of it all. The problem we face is that we, we hardly ever let ourselves be in a place where we're alone, right? And we, we tend to stay so busy. Man, we're, we're really good at self-avoidance. Like, I, I don't love getting downwind of myself sometimes, so I just stay busy, which is why we grab a screen. We, we throw, a, throw something on to binge watch. We keep something going. We keep our task list full. We keep our calendars uh, packed. It is because when we get, when we get by ourselves, we have to start thinking about what's in here. But you know, that's also the place where the Lord can go to work. It's when it's quiet, when you're not distracted with everything else, and when you're not just running from one thing to the next, but you have time for self-reflection, for introspection, for wrestling with the Lord, for praying and asking Him to help you see the contradictions in your own life, the places where your hypocrisy shows up, like getting in a place where you're quiet enough that the Lord can go, hey, bud, what about that? What about that thing in your life? I, I want that part of your heart too. I want to know that part of you. And we see, that, uh, we see it in David's life as he's out with the sheep and we'll unpack more of this in the weeks to come. But David has been shaped even before he had any kind of prominence. He's been shaped by God and his heart, was, his heart belonged to the Lord. Let me end with a story. Josh McDowell, it's a famous story that Josh McDowell, writer, speaker, um, has told and uh, told for a long time and it always stuck with me and it reminds me of the young David. And and McDowell was a gifted young man that was uh, really, had just done all the hard work, a seminary degree, went on to work for Bill Bright and Campus Crusade, kind of back in the heyday when they were exploding on the scene and making huge impact throughout uh, throughout the nation, really throughout the world. And he, he gets hired on staff and he's got this significant role to play. And every summer they gather everyone together and there's this chance for uh, this kind of teaching time. And he's like, man, I'm, I'm a seminary grad. I'm a teacher. I've got this important stuff I wanna do. I've got things to say. I can't wait to get to do this. And he said, but the first couple of years he, he'd get there to the time and his job was to make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for thousands of college students. And so he spent the first couple of years doing that and just going, man, I wanna be teaching. It's time for me to get to do my thing. I wanna do this important stuff. and I've got all this stuff to say. And so he's looking forward to the day when he finally gets to do that. And they come to another year and he actually gets his name listed among the people that are gonna teach. And Billy Graham's coming this year and he's got an opportunity to be on the platform and to get to do his thing for the first time ever. And he's, he just, kind of waiting on it. He's been looking forward to it. He's counting down the days. He's prepping, he's doing everything. And he says, two days before he gets there, Bill Bright, his boss calls him and says, Josh, we got an emergency. We got a deal. I got 120 college students. They need you. They need someone to lead them and it's you. And he says, well, not Bill, Bill this year. He's like, I'm supposed to teach this year. It's not my deal. And he says, and he said to him, well, that's just gonna have to wait. There's plenty of years for that. We gotta do this now. He said, he just was angry and he got mad. And as he, was, as he tells this story, he just said, Bill Bright just said, I need you down here. You can do that another time. So he did it. And every day, you know what he did? He helped lead those 120 college students to clean all the barracks, all the stuff, all the place where they were. And he had to clean all the toilets. You know what his nickname was? Captain Commode. So he went from teaching platform to being Captain Commode, making sure that all these toilets were clean for all the guests at this place. 
And he said he just got angrier and angrier. And for two days, he did it and he did it and he did it, but he was stewing on the inside. So the day that Billy Graham got there, he said, he, he'll never forget, he came around the corner and he saw Bill Bright and Billy Graham there. And this is his hero. He wanted to go do that. And he's, he's literally he said, I'm holding a bucket and a plunger. And I see him and I set him down and I wiped my hands off and shook my hand and introduced, him, introduced himself to Billy Graham. And he put a smile on, but he was stewing on the inside. And that insult to injury, that night when Billy Graham was gonna speak, he thought he was gonna get to go and at least see Billy Graham, his man speak. And so just before he walked into the auditorium, Bill Bright grabs him and says, hey, someone tracked a bunch of tar into the front rug and it's gonna stain. Can you get out there and get that clean? Grab that box of cleaner and get out there and do that. And he said he just stormed off and he grabbed that box of cleaner and he came back in that room and he said he was mad. He walked up front desk and he just slammed it down. And he said the cleaning fluid went this way. The two people that were out uh, behind the desk got covered. He said it scattered over the mailboxes. It was there. And he said he was just livid and said, I've had it. And he said in exactly that moment, he said he felt like the Lord Jesus just said to him, if I can wash their feet, why can't you clean their toilets? And he said, I, I've been different ever since. He said, that day, I learned to find joy in the stuff that, can't, that no one else sees. He says, and that joy has never left me. But God got my heart in that moment. He changed me. Friends, we need to be people who have a heart after the Lord. All the stuff is gonna fade away and God doesn't see it, but God sees a heart. Let's, as we lean in on this series, let's be people that run after God's heart that lean on him, that seek him, and trust that not just as we learn about David, but we'll learn about what it looks like to walk with the Lord. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we pray. Father, would you make us people who have hearts like you? Father, we fall short. We stumble, we trip, we fall down, we blow it. And your grace is always there to pick us up. And so we trust you. We love you, and we want to be more like you. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.